Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 326, the year 1000. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Alona, Helen, and Colleen for signing up already. It's so easy to lose the forest for the trees. This show is a show about one small island, which even at this point of the story, is still on the edge of civilization. And by focusing so much on this island, it's really easy to forget that there's a whole other world out there. And it's a world that keeps turning. And the events that are happening at this point in history all over the world would go on to shape who we are today. So, it's the year 1000. And before we return to our story, we're going to check in briefly with the rest of the world. And what follows isn't going to be a comprehensive history. Instead, it's intended to help you place the events of our story in the larger context of the bigger human story. And we'll begin this tour on our island itself, in Scotland. Now, as you know, our sources for this region during this era are pretty terrible. And so far, the North has suffered from temporary neglect in the podcast. But that doesn't mean that things have been quiet up there. The truth of it is that Scotland has actually been having a rough time of it. In particular, their kings kept dying. Violently. In fact, the last century had begun with King Donald II of Scotland dying in battle in the year 900. And he died either at the hands of the Gaels or the Vikings. Accounts differ on who was responsible for the death, but all the accounts agree that it was violent. And so, his cousin, King Constantine II, took the throne, and he ruled for 43 years. But just because he was ruling for a long time doesn't mean his rule was easy. Constantine II was fighting the Vikings, he was fighting King Athelstan, he was fighting all over the place. In fact, remember that old gray-haired king of Scotland that fought Athelstan at Burdenburg? That was Constantine II. And although he didn't die a violent death, he was eventually pushed out of power and likely forced into becoming a monk by his enemies which paved the way for the son of his predecessor, Donald II, to take the throne. That son's name was Malcolm, and that's how we get King Malcolm I of Scotland, whose 11-year reign saw battles with Strathclyde, Vikings, and even Northumbria. The Scots under Malcolm were in a state of near-constant war, and their enemies even likely included Olaf and Eric Bloodaxe. And, inevitably, King Malcolm I was killed in 954. The man who followed him was Indulf, the son of Malcolm's predecessor, King Constantine II. And Indulf was nicknamed the Aggressor, which might not have been a trait that served him, because in 962, he died in a fight with the Vikings. And that paved the way for King Dub, the son of Malcolm. And this was a man who generated quite a bit of mystery during his reign. And that mystery then turned into accusations of treason and even witchcraft. Now, modern historians aren't sure if King Dub was actually a witch, but they are sure that he was unpopular, because after a reign of just five short years, the Scots rebelled, and Cullen, who was the son of Dub's predecessor, Indulf, launched a revolt and defeated King Dub, the probably not a witch, and the annals then report that Dub was, quote, killed by the Scots themselves, end quote. 
which some have taken to mean he died in battle, while others have claimed that it was through an assassination after the fact. But that's how we end up with King Cullen, who reigned for five years before violently being killed in 971. And the Chronicle of the Kings of Alba and the Annals of Ulster claim that he died fighting the Britons. So if you manage to follow that, you'll notice that the throne of Scotland wasn't passing from father to son, but rather from cousin to cousin. It was bouncing back and forth between lines. And that's because the royal dynasty of Scotland had multiple branches. Honestly, too many branches. And in a kingdom that didn't follow strict primogeniture, that meant that the crown was typically passing to the son of the previous king rather than to the son of the recently deceased king. And that wasn't lending itself to political stability. But maybe in an attempt to break from that practice, the Irish records claim that Colin's brother, Omlabe, made a play for the throne of Scotland. And actually, he might have been successful. Well, briefly. But pretty quickly, his cousin, the son of King Malcolm, seized the throne. And his name was Kenneth. He would become King Kenneth II. But for the Scots, this actually might have been a nice change, because old King Malcolm had a pretty good run of it back in the day. So this might have felt like a bit of normalcy. And honestly, it kind of was. The Scottish crown went back to business as usual. They plundered their neighbors to the south for a while, and later established peace with King Edgar the Peaceable. They did pretty much typical medieval stuff. But in the background, those branches of the Scottish royal family were still feuding. And even though Kenneth was sitting on the throne, the fact was that Amlabe, the son of King Indulf, had managed to briefly take Kenneth's seat. And that was a fact that wasn't sitting well with him. And apparently, the fact that it was only temporary wasn't sitting all that well with Amlabe either. Because from the Annals of Ulster, it appears that Amlabe managed to oust Kenneth from power in 977, thus becoming the King of Scotland again. Well, for a hot minute, because shortly after he nabbed the crown, King Kenneth II came roaring back and killed him. And so, having already dealt with one threat to his supremacy, King Kenneth II decided to go the full nine and change the rules entirely to protect his dynasty. He said that succession would now go to the nearest survivor in blood to the deceased king. That's who would succeed. So Scotland was finally joining primogeniture, which was great news for King Kenneth's sons, but really bad news for the cousins. In particular, Constantine's son of Cullen and Kenneth's son of Dub were really unhappy because overnight they went from being in line to the throne to just being a couple guys with famous dads. And some sources hint at a plot for revenge. These sources claim that Constantine's son of Cullen and Kenneth's son of Dub contacted King Kenneth II's enemy. She was a noble woman named Finella. And she really had a beef with King Kenneth II because he killed her son some years earlier. So she was looking for some payback. And they hatched a plan. Sometime later, when King Kenneth II went hunting, Lady Fenilla came upon him, and she professed her loyalty and told him that she had information about a conspiracy against him. And she would tell it to him in detail as soon as they were alone. And as luck would have it, she knew of a cottage where they could go. So she led the king to that cottage, and they went inside where a series of booby traps unleashed a torrent of crossbow bolts, slaying the king as soon as he entered. And I know, right? This sounds like something out of Grimm's fairy tales. 
And to be honest, it might be just as factual, because it doesn't appear in the record until about 200 years after King Kenneth's death. But that being said, it's the only story that we have for how King Kenneth was killed. All the contemporary record tells us was that the king was killed by deceit. And then another contemporary record adds that it was by his subjects. So all signs do point to a conspiracy, but it's unclear if it actually involved any sort of booby traps. But upon this inauspicious death, his rival, Constantine's son of Colin, became King Constantine III in 995. So the cousins were back. But only two years later, in 997, King Constantine III was killed in battle. And the annals of Tigernach said that his death came as a result of, quote, a battle between the Scots, end quote. So, with the cousins back, Scotland returned to normal service. Though with an interesting twist, because additional details appear to indicate that the son of King Malcolm of Strathclyde was actually involved in this killing. Because why just let two dynasties have all the fun, am I right? And now, with King Constantine dead, that meant that the throne lay open for a cousin. In particular, Kenneth, son of King Dub. And thus, he became King Kenneth III, who was reigning in the year 1000. And behind him was a huge pile of kingly bodies. And what do you think the chances are that he's going to die of natural causes? But that's not all that was going on on the British Isles. Across the Irish Sea, there was a man named Brian. His mother was the daughter of an Irish king, and his father was the son of an Irish king. And together, they're reigning as king and queen of, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to butcher this, Tuadmamu. But given how Gaelic works, even though it's spelled Tuadmamu, I'm pretty sure it's actually pronounced Jeff or something. But the point here is that with so many royal lines involved, Brian had a fancy-ass family. It was also a big one. He had 11 brothers. And eventually... Brian's dad did what many kings of this era did. He died a violent death. And the throne passed to Brian's older brother, who held it for six years. And during his reign, this brother expanded his holdings to all of Munster. But then he died. Violently. Possibly at the hands of his own subjects. And that is how Brian Boru became king of Munster. And he had big ambitions. He began working on extending his authority into Connacht, which was the homeland of his mother, and started to also move towards Leinster. And by doing that, he caught the attention of the High King of Ireland, who ruled in Meath. Not wanting to have his power challenged by the southern upstart, the High King launched attack after attack upon Munster. And for 15 years, Brian Boru and the High King of Ireland struggled for dominance on both land and sea. The balance of power swung wildly through the era, but... Conflict can be an incredible educator, and so can defeat, and Brian was a good learner. So in 996, Brian managed to outmaneuver the High King and secure his hold on Leinster. Recognizing that he was on the losing side, the High King struck a compromise with Brian. In his accord, Brian would basically control the southern half of Ireland, and the High King would control the northern half. But shortly after the agreement was struck, Leinster under a rebel king named Male Morda, launched a rebellion against Brian. And they were joined by the north city of Dublin, under Sigtrick Silkbeard. And this culminated in a large battle in 999, where Brian Boru's army fought against the Leinster-Dublin forces at the Battle of Glenmama. And the sources agree 
that it was a brutal and bloody affair. But in the end, Brian was victorious. So, here, in the year 1000, Brian was still struggling against Male and Silkbeard's rebellion. But this was just a detour for Brian. He had big ambitions. He wanted to be the High King of Ireland. And sure, there was the small problem of the fact that he wasn't part of the O'Neill dynasty. But really, that was just a minor inconvenient detail, because Brian had a plan. And in the year 1000, he was almost ready to execute it. But Brian wasn't the only ambitious man on the map. In the north was the Scandinavian explorer Eric the Red. He had been born to a banished father, and he'd spent most of his life on the run looking for a new home. Eventually, Eric and his father had settled in Iceland. But in time, his father died, and Eric took up the family business of wandering. And in 986, we're told that he sailed west from Iceland. And eventually, he found a bleak patch of land. And in a moment of marketing history, he decided to name it Greenland, in hopes of attracting settlers. Now, other records indicate that other Norse navigators had found Greenland about a century before Eric, and they'd even tried to settle it. But typically, Eric is credited with the discovery. And that's likely because he was the first to successfully establish a permanent settlement. And that was helped, no doubt, through his ingenious branding abilities. Meanwhile, across the English Channel in Francia, King Robert II, who is the son of Hugh Capet, who in turn was the son of Hugh the Great, was ruling over France. But in the year 1000, he was in a pretty tight spot. You see, his father had made him marry Rosala, the widow of Count Arnulf II of Flanders. Now, Arnulf II was the great-great-grandson of Alfred the Great, and also the great-great-grandson of Judith. So Rosala was the widow of someone who was pretty powerful, and now she was married to the King of France. But as grand as that pedigree might have been, this was a political marriage, and it had been forced upon Robert against his wishes. But the man who had forced it upon him, Hugh Capet, was now dead, which meant that Robert II was king, which meant that Robert can do pretty much whatever he wanted. So he set aside Rosala, and he decided to shack up with his cousin, Bertha. Now in history, King Robert II of France is often called Robert the Pious, or Robert the Wise. And you might be thinking that ditching your highborn wife to marry your cousin doesn't seem too wise or pious. And I happen to agree, but more importantly, so did the Pope. In fact, His Holiness was so unhappy with King Robert II that he excommunicated him. And normally, that would put a king at risk of rebellion. But Robert had a powerful friend, Richard II, the Duke of Normandy. So as the year 1000 dawned, Robert II was on shaky ground. And so was Francia. And as a result, Duke Richard II was doing pretty good. Meanwhile, in East Francia, Otto III was reigning as emperor. Now, he was the grandson of Otto the Great. But as impressive as his background was, he had very little experience in ruling, in spite of the fact that he'd been on the throne for 17 years. And that's because he'd been crowned as an infant in 983, when his father, Otto II, had died. As a result of that, in every sense, his mother, Theofano, had been actually running the country as regent. Otto, for large portions of his life thus far, had been emperor in name only. Not that he or East Francia had much of a choice in the matter, because at that point in their history, they needed an adult in the room. They were facing numerous enemies to the kingdom, not the least of which were the Slavic tribes on their eastern border, the Wends, 
who had been forcibly converted to Christianity. And, well, it turns out they weren't too happy about that. Farther to the east, on this same year, Boleslav was crowned as the first king of Poland. And meanwhile, on the Mediterranean, Venice and Genoa were becoming dominant trading powers. In fact, Genoa was only a few years away from following in Venice's footsteps and officially forming a republic. The two trading city-states were well-positioned to take advantage of the lucrative trade routes that were coming out of Byzantium. It was a position that was only enhanced as piracy was suppressed in the Mediterranean. Through their trade routes, and thanks to their connections with the empire, large amounts of goods from throughout the known world were flowing all throughout Europe. And speaking of the Byzantine Empire, at this point, Emperor Basil II was ruling. Now, he'd recently put down a rebellion by General Bardas Phokas, and he managed to do that thanks to the support of Viking mercenaries who had been sent to him by Prince Vladimir of the Kievan Rus. And you might know these Viking mercenaries by a different name, the Varangians. And internal rebellions were only one part of Basil II's problems. He was also fighting a war with the Fatimid Caliphate in Syria. And it was a war that had been going on for nearly a decade. But finally, in the year 1000, a 10-year truce had been called. And it was a truce that allowed Basil to focus on the other war he was waging. This one was with Tsar Samuel of Bulgaria. So, as 1000 dawned in Byzantium, one long bloody conflict came to an end, and another one was only just beginning to heat up. But speaking of the Fatimid Caliphate, this Shia Muslim Caliphate had holdings that stretched across vast portions of North Africa and into the Middle East, and their rulers claimed descent from Fatima, the daughter of Muhammad. And by this point in their history, they had successfully conquered Egypt and moved their capital to Cairo, making Egypt the center of their empire. Like the Byzantines, much of their wealth came from trade, with their trade routes stretching as far as China. They also drew income from their extensive agriculture, which again, provided further goods for trade, which then in turn meant that luxury items from all over the known world were flowing into the caliphate cities. However, as 1000 approached, cracks were starting to form. By having such a large empire, they, by necessity, had large numbers of people from a wide variety of backgrounds, ethnicities, and even religions. For generations now, the Berbers had the most influence over military and political affairs. But now, their dominance were being challenged by the Turks. Adding to this problem, other groups were also starting to grow discontent with Berber control. But rather than sharing power, they were clamping down. It was turning the caliphate into a tinderbox. And for now, the region was stable. But one small strain on the region, in the form of, say, for example, a drought or a famine, that would probably be all it would take to set the entire region into rebellion. Meanwhile, in Spain, there was a guy named Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abi Amir. And when he was a young man, he'd come to Cordoba to study law and literature. So he was my kind of guy. But pretty soon, he ingratiated himself into court. And he must have done really well there, because before long, he was managing the estates of Prince Hashim II of the Umayyad Caliphate. Eventually, Prince Hashim II became the Caliph of Spain. And suddenly, this humble law student was rocketed up to the upper tiers of influence. Though, of course, he was also busy taking out his political rivals along the way. Sometimes he did this through politics. Sometimes he did it through warfare. 
rebellions were not uncommon at this point. And it was after one such rebellion where he crushed the forces of his father-in-law, Ghalib al-Nasiri, at the Battle of Torre Vicente, that Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abi Amir took on a different name, al-Mansur, which means the victorious. And he really was victorious, because he didn't just defeat Ghalib's rebellion. Caliph Hisham also fully handed over the reins of the empire to him. He was now fully in control. And Al-Mansur would later be credited with bringing the Umayyad Caliphate to its zenith. And actually, to this day, the central peak of Spain is named after him. And I'm sure that Caliph Hashim II would have appreciated all that Mansur had done for him had Al-Mansur not imprisoned him and held him in exile. But he had. And with Hisham out of the picture, Al-Mansur undertook yearly invasions of the Christian states on the Iberian Peninsula primarily against Leon, Castile, and Barcelona. And in 1000, and in 1000, he defeated a Castilian army at the Battle of Cervera. Shortly afterwards, the Christian states of the peninsula formed an alliance against him. Farther south, in Africa, the Wagado Empire, also known as the Ghana Empire, was at its own height of power. Wagado was a nation built on the wealth of trade. And for good reason, as they had control of the trans-Saharan trade routes. And they used their sizable military to ensure that these routes remained open. And for a price, they could also offer merchants protection on the road. And the fact that their roads were well patrolled, and the fact that additional protection was always available, well, that made Wagado a very attractive market for merchants. And eventually, the region became known as the Gold Coast. With so many traders coming in, Wagado became fantastically wealthy and was able to provide goods from far and wide. A walk through their markets would not only showcase their main exports of salt and gold, but also weaponry, slaves, horses, spices, silk, even luxury items like European books. Furthermore, this abundance of people coming from all over the place into their cities made Wagado a cultural and technological melting pot. So this enabled the empire to not just profit from the wealth of trade that was coming from their markets, but also from the wealth of ideas that these people were bringing with them. Meanwhile, in India, Emperor Raja Raja I was ruling over the Chola Empire. And his dynasty was one of the longest ruling dynasties in history, lasting fully 1600 years and stretching from the 3rd century BCE all the way to the 13th century CE. And on the year 1000, Emperor Raja Raja had begun a massive census and land survey project, which would allow him to reorganize the entire country. And through his efforts, and continuing through the next four emperors, the Chola Empire would be transformed into a cultural, military, and economic powerhouse in the region. And it was all kicking into high gear, right here in the year 1000. To the north and west, Mahmud of Ghazni was ruling over the Ghaznavid Empire. And this empire would eventually stretch through modern-day Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and parts of India. He was the first ruler of his dynasty, having replaced the Samanids. He was also the first Muslim ruler to be known as Sultan. Under Sultan Mahmud's leadership, the Ghaznavid Empire became heavily militarized, which allowed them to engage in invasions and raids on their neighbors. In fact, he would go on to engage in at least 17 invasions of India. During his lifetime, he would see his empire grow substantially, and in the year 1000, he was likely in the planning states of his invasion into modern-day Afghanistan and Pakistan. 
And at about the same point in Southeast Asia, the Dai Viet of North Vietnam had invaded the Champa of South Vietnam. But the year 1000 was far more than just war and conquest. In fact, something extraordinary was happening in Japan. The world's first novel was being written. And it was written by a woman named Murasaki Shikibu. Now this was a pen name, so we don't know who this woman was for certain. But we are certain that she was a noble woman who lived in the imperial court and was an imperial lady-in-waiting. So it's theorized that she might have been Fujiwara no Karuko. But whoever she was, what she produced was the first of its kind in the world. And the form that she made is still with us today. The novel was called The Tale of Genji, and it told the story of an attractive nobleman named Hikaru Genji. The tale follows his numerous romances in the high-stakes political pressure cooker of Japanese courtly life. And in addition to creating an entirely new medium for expression, inventing both the novel and the romance genre in one go, Shikibu also gives us a glimpse into the imperial culture of the Heian period. Because this novel and her diary provides historians an unflinching look not only at Japanese courtly life, but also the lives of Japanese noble women, which, in spite of their wealth, held little personal autonomy and faced oppression in nearly all aspects of their lives. But it also shows us that in the face of this oppression, some women still managed to create art and literature that the world had never seen before. To the south and the Pacific Island, and approximately this point in history, a Polynesian society was colonizing the island of Rapa Nui, or as it's known in the English-speaking world, Easter Island. And there, they were beginning to erect giant statues known as Moai. It's thought that these giant sculptures were meant to channel spiritual energy, and that they also represented their ancestors, possibly former or even maybe even living chiefs. They would have also, by extension, served as a powerful symbol of prestige for the clan who erected one. And archaeologists suspect that this is why there's so much variation in size and scale of the Moai. As different clans jockeyed for position in society, they competed to build the largest and grandest statues. The creation of these statues became a major part of life on the island, and eventually, over 900 Moai were created. With so much activity centering around these sculptures, it necessitated a tremendous amount of organization in their creation and also their transportation. After all, these weren't made in situ. Instead, the stone was quarried, then carved, and only then was the moai moved to the desired location. And most of these statues were placed near the ocean, eventually creating a ring around the periphery of the island, with almost all of them facing inwards, sometimes with a red stone cylinder placed on their heads. But getting them there was the trick, because the quarry that provided the stone for the moai was on the eastern side of the island. So for the statues to ring the island, they had to be moved into place, which meant that in some cases, they had to be moved over 10 miles to their eventual home. And that is a huge undertaking, considering that the largest of these statues was over 33 feet tall. I mean, it's not like you can just get a couple guys together and put it in the back of a pickup. Even if pickups existed, it would bust your truck. Those moai were huge and unbelievably heavy, with some weighing over 90 tons. Which raises the question, how did they move them? Well, according to oral histories, the Moai walked over to their places. Yeah, apparently, the statues were eager to please, and they just got up and strode to their spot on the command of the king. 
Later on, other statues moved at the request of a local woman. Nice people, those statues. But, for the sake of argument, let's imagine that the statues refused to magically stroll over to the coastline. In that situation, how would you get them there? Well, it's not precisely known, but scholars have a few ideas. It's possible that they were walked over there. Not that they strolled over there, but instead that they were using ropes and large work crews to kind of tip them back and forth, basically shimmying them. So sort of like when you agree to help your buddy move, and when you finally get to the fridge, you realize that your friend forgot to rent a trolley. Only in this case, instead of just a few dozen yards to the truck, you're going over 10 miles over uneven rocky land with something that weighs 90 tons. As you can imagine, for the bigger statues, this was a bit of a problem, and it could actually require crews larger than a thousand men. And while it is a reasonable theory for how they were moved, when archaeologists attempted to test this theory by recreating it directly, it resulted in a lot of damage to the statues. Another theory suggests that the Moai were laid down on a sledge and then pulled over to the desired location. And this too would have required a huge work crew. And attempts at recreating this method also ran into issues. The biggest one was that the sledge would often get stuck in the ground. Which, you know, makes sense. I mean, your mileage might vary, but I remember when I was a kid and my bicycle would get stuck in the mud. So I can only imagine how often that would happen when you're dealing with a stone statue that weighs over 80 or 90 tons. Finally, another theory suggests that the sledge was placed on logs and that it was rolled across them. And that would make things a lot easier, and it would require substantially fewer workers. Furthermore, it's the same method that the Easter Islanders had used in the mid-1800s when they were moving stones. But then again, the logs can easily jam up, and then the whole thing can get stuck in the ground pretty easily. It also leaves us with another question. If you Google Easter Island today, you can see the Moai statues. In fact, you can often see many of them lined up. And you can see them pretty easily, because Rapa Nui is mostly a plain. So how would you have a method of moving the Moai that involved logs when there's no trees? Well, back in the year 1000, Rapa Nui actually had trees. A lot of trees, in fact. It looked quite different back then. So actually creating a network of wooden rollers wouldn't have been a problem. Furthermore, Professor Charles Love gave this method a try, and he found that it made the task much easier. And he also claimed that by setting up posts on either side of the tracks, you could keep the statue oriented over rough terrain. And they could even be used as cantilevers to move the statue over hills and the like. He also claimed to have found exactly this sort of post hole in the ground, right where you'd expect them to be. So, maybe this is how it was done. It would also answer the question of what happened to the trees. Because pollen analysis on the island reveals that only 200 years after this statue building began, the island was almost entirely deforested. And by 1650, not a single tree was left on the island of Rapa Nui. In all likelihood, the culture that placed so much emphasis on the creation of these status symbols destroyed the ecosystem that sustained them. It was a process that was beginning right now, in the year 1000. And in only 200 years, trees would be gone from Rapa Nui, never to return, only to be replaced by statues. Heading farther east, into Central America, a culture called the Toltecs had been going through a major urban boom. Citizens were moving into towns, and many were headed to the major city of Tolan. 
This urbanization drew migrants from the surrounding areas, and these cities became massive cultural and ethnic melting pots, leaving a mark on subsequent Central American cultures. Farther to the north, in a place called Chaco Canyon in modern-day New Mexico, the Anasazi civilization was reaching its climax. The Anasazi were an incredible Pueblo culture that used sophisticated agricultural and hydrology techniques to thrive in the arid lands of the North American Southwest, which is one of the driest regions on planet Earth. This culture is best known for their massive communal cliff houses, like Pueblo Benito, which was six stories high and had over 600 rooms. And that was only one of the 13 of such buildings. It's thought that the canyon was home to as many as 10,000 people. And in addition to the Pueblos, the Anasazi kept well-maintained roads with stone curbs. And these roads connected their main cultural center to the thousands of smaller Anasazi settlements throughout the Southwest. What the Anasazi had accomplished by the year 1000 was incredible, but there was a problem brewing under the surface. The land that the Anasazi inhabited was harsh, and the ecosystem was fragile. Their advanced agricultural systems helped a great deal, but their livelihoods depended on a delicate balance between human needs and natural capacity. And as the population expanded, and as the settlements expanded in turn, things only got more precarious. The year 1000 saw thousands of people thriving in the desert environment of the American Southwest, but they were all living at the mercy of a single fragile ecosystem. And eventually, this impressive infrastructure began to turn from the miracle that facilitated their civilization into the cause of their downfall. Eventually, there were just too many people for the land to support. And in an effort to try and keep up with the demands of the population, the Anasazi rerouted water and began to deforest the region. But by removing the trees, the Anasazi laid waste to the very water table that sustained them. And soon thereafter, the region was hit by a terrible drought. And these had happened in the past, but when this drought hit, it struck a land that was already devastated through mismanagement and exploitation, which had been focused only on the short-term needs of its inhabitants. And so there was nothing to stop it. And as a result, a complete systemic collapse was inevitable. Just 200 years after the height of the Anasazi civilization, those buildings, those roads and temples, even the farms, all of it would lie abandoned their civilization collapsed. By focusing only in the now, the Anasazi had lost the future. All this and so much more was happening in the globe for humanity and for the world in the year 1000. This episode is just a small glimpse of the history of the new era we're entering into. Britain is the center of our story here. But always remember that it's just one of many stories and they were interacting with each other in ways that we're only now just beginning to discover. That's the real story of humanity. It's a story that can't be reduced to a single nation or a single era or just one experience. At any given moment, people have been fighting, trading, building, and creating, and it's never stopped. Each moment and each place has something to teach all of us about who we are and where we come from. That history belongs to all of us, and we can all stand in wonder at the scale and drama of it. So as we take our little island into a new era, never forget that we're just one part of a great big human world. Welcome to the first millennium. It's the end of the world as we know 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can join any of our other communities by going to the community section of the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>